You're sitting in a diner eating a pastrami on rye. The guy at the next booth over from you has a look about him. You can't quite place it. He finishes his meal, a club sandwich, of course. He wipes his mouth with a napkin, tossing it on his plate before he pays at the register and walks out the door. What he doesn't realize is he's just helped cops solve a 30-year-plus cold case, making himself the target of the investigation. My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. It's Wednesday, March 26th, 1986. 12-year-old Michelle Welsh is given the adultish task of babysitting her two younger siblings. They live in Tacoma, Washington, and the area we're talking about is experiencing a bit of collective societal anxiety. You see, the Green River Killer is on the loose, and teenage girls in and around the region keep turning up missing. Michelle had dirty blonde hair flowing past her shoulders and this gentle and kind demeanor. And she wore those like tortoiseshell glasses fashionable in the 70s and 80s. She was your typical 1980s preteen, her entire life ahead of her. So at 10 a.m., Michelle and her two siblings leave their downtown home heading to Puget Park. It's a fairly simple route, yet kind of a far distance for a 12-year-old and her younger sisters. They go west on 6th Avenue for about 10 blocks, then directly north onto North Union for about 20 blocks. That's pretty damn far, actually. The park itself is massive and popular. The northern side of the park sort of butts up against Commencement Bay, with the entire north and west end of this area of Tacoma being a peninsula. So the 11 a.m. hour is approaching, and the three of them are enjoying a day off from school in the park. Of course, this is a different time. The park then was more of a place to go for kids than it might be today. There are so many parks that I used to play at when I was a kid in the 80s in my hometown that aren't for kids anymore. They are for adults doing bad behavior. Uh <laughs> Okay, let's leave that there. I have a traumatic memory from a park. Mm -hmm. I remember walking to school one day in grammar school in East Tarford, Connecticut, and I went into the park on the way to school and a girl kicked my ass. <laughs> a cherished memory. A girl beat my ass. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I want anyone to kick your ass, Phelps, but, <laughs> but like, good for her. I, I literally remember her with her arm on my neck. Punching me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, that was Catherine Law, my producer, who you are going to hear from time to time on Crossing the Line. And if you've listened to previous episodes, you've already heard her, but she's wonderful. I mean, I remember how magic it was to go to the park. Of course, we didn't have a zillion digital distractions. So it was kind of a rite of passage, really, right? To hang out in a park. Anyway. Getting hungry, Michelle tells her siblings she is going to bike ride back home, make some sandwiches, and then return. The girls are told by Michelle to stay in the park and play. 
When she got back to the park sometime later, the girls were gone. Michelle, of course, became immediately worried. We can be certain about that. So she begins looking around, calling out her sister's names. What Michelle didn't know was that her sisters had left the park to use the restroom at a nearby business. And we know they had used the phone there to call her at home to see what was taking her so long to make the damn sandwiches. But they were never able to reach her. I know what you're thinking. That is, if true crime runs through your veins like it does Catherine Law, you're thinking, uh-oh, uh-huh. why did these kids leave that park and venture out into the city all alone? Right. And you think about Tacoma, it's like not that big of a city, but it is a city. It's a city. Mm-hmm. And it was back then as well. Mm-hmm. But there are so many twists in this story, which reminds me that in missing person and murder cases of young girls, the norm, or should I say what we presume to be the norm doesn't always apply. Investigators always keep an open mind as to what could have happened without jumping to what our minds would normally latch onto when we go down the road of a situation like this one. And you'll see what I mean in a minute. Because if you begin to think you know what happened, you've already done a detrimental disservice to the case. Right. You can't just assume based on your first assumptions or your first interaction with this case what happened or what's going on. Turns out Michelle's siblings are fine. Near 1 p.m., they return to the park after walking to the business nearby to use the bathroom and then call home to see where Michelle was. It's been two hours now since the two sisters split up with their older sister, Michelle. They don't see Michelle anywhere near the playground where they were all hanging out earlier and decide to continue playing nearby underneath a bridge in this gulch area. They figure that perhaps Michelle just hasn't come back yet. Some moments later, the girls approached the area where they were first playing with Michelle before she left to make the sandwiches. They now see her bike on the ground, on its side, and they see their lunch on the picnic table, spread out, ready to eat. But Michelle is nowhere in sight. The girls, not knowing any better, assume Michelle had run off somewhere to play alone or look for them, so they walk over to the gulch and begin calling out her name. Some time passes. The girls become worried about Michelle, their sister, and find a phone to call their regular babysitter and tell her what's going on. They cannot find Michelle. She's missing. The babysitter calls the girl's mother, and she then calls the police. By now, it's about 3.10 in the afternoon. Still no Michelle, and police are actively searching the park. One bit of information police get that afternoon is from an employee at a nearby school who knew Michelle. The employee says she saw Michelle speaking with a man near the gulch. The focus of the search is now centered in and near this gulch. People in the area are now becoming involved as helicopters and search parties are scouring this entire park where Michelle went missing. It's intense. Picture this situation. I mean, I cannot imagine as a parent myself being in this position where Every second matters. Every single moment counts, and every single minute you don't find her sends you farther away from her, right? The the thoughts that must be running through their minds, uh, the frustration, the anxiety has to be paralyzing. We all know the stats, or maybe we don't. Every hour that passes during those initial 24 hours is like a day when it comes to finding the child. Time is working against you at every stage. So here were the statistics at the time, all right? 
81% of non-family abductions are kids 12 years old or older. In 40% of those circumstances, the child is killed and nearly half are sexually assaulted. And this is no surprise. 86% of the perpetrators are male. Those are not the numbers you want to hear if you're a parent that's in this situation. Yeah, I mean, all those numbers are working against you. It's it's scary shit. I mean, not the kind of numbers you want to hear if your 12-year-old child goes missing in a park, last seen talking to a male. Yeah. And six or seven hours have passed without locating her. Darkness now overcomes daylight and you're forced to make a decision as police were in this situation. And so what do they do next? They bring in the canines. So with that, let's take a short break and come right back. Bright lights are now illuminating the park with scores of volunteers and law enforcement searching for Michelle. By 11 p.m., rescue dogs locate Michelle Welsh in an isolated area of the Gulch, about a quarter mile from where she had been playing and hanging out with her sisters. Everyone's worst fears are confirmed. She's dead. According to an affidavit I obtained, she was laying on her back, her head turned to the left, her arms positioned outward, shoulder height. Her shirt was pulled up above her rib cage, her pants and underwear pulled down around her ankles. She died from blunt force trauma to the head, a three-inch diameter fracture, and her throat had been slit with a seven-inch laceration. She was sexually assaulted in the most vile ways imaginable. This is just heartbreaking. It's just awful. The reaction to this horrific discovery cripples the city. People are outraged, horrified, scared, angry. Everyone wants this guy caught. Police are able to find male DNA inside of her right thigh and in two other areas I just will not mention. But remember, this is 1986. Forensics is not a thing. There are no DNA databases of any significance to pop in a profile and hope a match spits out. Any type of blood typing or early DNA analysis takes exorbitant amounts of time and lots of person power. So, yes, they have some evidence, but, you know, DNA is only as good (laughs) as something to match it to. Thankfully, they were in a spot where they were already beginning to take these types of samples so that technology could catch up with it. I've been to conferences, forensic conferences, and it's amazing to me at how fast technology changes. Mm, Especially now. Yeah, I'll go to a conference and see the latest technology that's coming six months, a year down the road. And the conference I attended a year before, that wasn't even there. Getting back to our story here, this is a community, mind you, already dealing with a serial killer on the loose, as I mentioned at the top of the episode. The Green River Killer case is very active at the time, and police have Gary Ridgway on their radar already. He will eventually be arrested and convicted of the Green River murders. But in 1986, Ridgway is out and about, so naturally, he's a suspect. And what's interesting about the Ridgway case near this time is he passes a polygraph after contacting police himself to offer his help with the case. 
This behavior, incidentally, is along the lines of when we see on true crime TV that the perp gets a high involving himself in the investigation. The other side of it is that true psychopaths like Ridgway believe they can pass polygraphs. And some research indicates that because they have lower than normal anxiety levels, this could hold some truth. But I tread lightly with this type of analysis, if you will. The 1980s is also a time when violent crime and murder rates are just about double what they are today. Back then, when there was news of a serial killer on the loose or a murderer running around, swiping up women and children, you were scared. Husbands for their wives, parents for their children. There was no true crime TV to kind of lessen the blow of how dangerous it was, you know, desensitizing us to this stuff. Just being out at night for some people back then was horrifying. It was full of anxiety. I think with all the reporting of true crime today, in many ways, it lessens our fear to the severity and reality of the real danger. And look, you are far, far safer today walking the streets at any time than you were back 25 years ago. That much I can guarantee you. Yeah, I live in a comparatively safe neighborhood in Los Angeles and sort of has like a small town feel. And I see some older houses that have bars on the windows. They have bars on every single window. And I used to be like, if they're not robbing the house next to you, they're not going to rob your house, whatever. No one's climbing in your windows. And then as I sort of dived a little bit more into, especially in the 70s and 80s, what was happening in Los Angeles? Oh, there's the Night Stalker. There's this person. There's all this crazy shit going on. And I'm sure there was a run of time where tons of people put bars all over the windows. It was a different time. Yeah. I can't stress this enough that the way we look at crime, murder, and violence today is so different than the way we looked at it back then. Mm -hmm. So with all that being said, was Michelle one of Green River's victims? Immediately, please totally rule this out simply because of where Michelle is found and her victimology. The Green River killer is striking sex workers and street girls somewhat older in their late teens and 20s. Michelle's case just doesn't have the same investigative feel of being connected. And, you know, cops, they get a sense of this, right? They, they know this stuff. Hers seems like a rape and murder of opportunity. Meaning in this situation, her killer didn't stalk her or have an affinity for her in particular. Instead, he saw a little girl alone, chose her on the spot, and took an opportunity to live out whatever hedonistic fantasy he has, killing her for his sick sexual gratification. And again, I mean, these guys were out there, right? They were out there, they were roaming around, and, and they were killing children. One thing that's been said about the Green River Killer is that he chose people who presumably didn't have anyone looking out for them, who, quote, wouldn't be missed. And these women, many of them actually did. They had their friends, other women on the street who were asking about them. And that's part of what got attention on that case. But when you compare that to a 12-year-old girl, that's a, there are a lot of people out looking for her who are going to notice her absence immediately. And in this case, I mean, within an hour, they're right. looking for her, basically. Right. So because they had male DNA from Michelle's body, it gives police at least a starting point. They can begin to place that DNA into the limited databases available at the time and also have the upper hand of knowing they have DNA for future testing. Months pass, nothing happens. Michelle's case goes cold. Police have very little to go on as I've outlined here. 
A sketch of the guy seen talking to Michelle is circulated, but produces basically no results. Then in August of the same year, just five months later, Jennifer Bastian, 13 years old, leaves a note inside her Tacoma home at about 2.30 saying she is heading out for a bike ride. In the note, she says, I'll be home by 6.30. Jennifer is in the process of training for a bike tour. She liked to go to Point Defiance Park, a few miles away from that park where Michelle was found murdered, to practice on a track there. You know, Jennifer's a beautiful child, bright blue eyes, shortly cropped, dirty blonde hair, just below her ears, a magnetic smile, and a charming disposition a friend later says not too many people have at her age. She likes to play softball, but she loves cycling. That's her passion. That tour she's training for is in the San Juan Islands. It's all she's been talking about. As she rides her bike on a five-mile loop in the park, several people there that day see her riding. They see her stopping, drinking water. You know, she's training. At 4.10 p.m., three kids who know Jennifer from school pass her in the park going in the opposite direction on that five-mile loop. She has obviously been riding. She's sweating. Now, there's another cyclist, an older male, riding near her. But it didn't seem like he was following her, more that he seems to be training as well and just happened to be near her when these kids that she knows see her. Between then and 5 p.m., two people in the park report talking to Jennifer. She stops to have a drink of water and tells them she is training for an upcoming tour. 6.30 comes around and Jennifer is not home. Her parents begin to worry. Remember, they found that note. She said she'd be back by 6.30. A couple hours pass and it's now after 8 p.m. and there is no sign of her. No call. Nobody has seen her. Jennifer's mother phones police and they immediately begin searching for her. Throughout the night, rescue dogs, volunteers, police, and Jennifer's family search everywhere for the girl, but do not find her or her bike. This situation feels eerily familiar to some, having done the same thing just months ago in searching for Michelle Welch. And people have to be wondering, what the hell's going on here? The city shuts the park down and keeps it closed for three days as the entire grounds are searched for Jennifer. But like Michelle Welch, Jennifer Bastian, gone. A sketch is distributed of a man with slick back hair, maybe 35, 40 years old, thin lips, pudgy face, wearing sunglasses. He was seen talking to Jennifer in the park. The sketch does not resemble the one from the Michelle Welch case. Again, distributing this sketch leads nowhere. And someday I'll talk about sketches and I have mixed feelings about sketches. They don't help, I think, in a lot of cases. I think they hurt. Over the course of the next several weeks, flyers are posted and handed out all over the park and nearby neighborhoods with Jennifer's photo and information about her disappearance. Her family posts the flyers on storefront windows and telephone poles. We all have these images in our heads of what this looks like. It's heartbreaking shattering to the core to see a flyer of a young girl missing posted somewhere in the town where we live. It just, it rips your heart out, right? That community outreach produces nothing in the form of leads or information. By the end of August, however, someone comes forward and reports that while jogging in the park with his YMCA running club, 
they all noticed an odor along one of the jogging trails off of that five-mile loop. Mm, We know what that means. Yep. Police send out a search team with dogs to scour that area, but they come up with nothing. But two days later, on August 28, 1986, German Shepherd search dogs specializing in finding human remains are brought in. And it doesn't take them long to locate Jennifer's decomposing remains in a heavily wooded area between the five-mile loop and what they called then the cliffs. Her bike is found near her body. It's thought right away, even with the amount of decomposition, that Jennifer has been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. An autopsy soon confirms these just horrible suspicions. Both of these cases, Jennifer Bastian and Michelle Welch, they feel very similar, right? There's similar characteristics, and they have some profilers at the time believing the same perp is responsible. Yet despite the dogged, greatest efforts of law enforcement, both cases run cold for decades. There were so many of these types of cases that ran cold that we're seeing solved now. Right, because finally things are catching up with them. I, You know, there's no statute of limitations on murder. It's just a matter of time, and a lot of these guys are still alive. Yeah, and we're going to get to that part of this. 10, then 20, then 30 years, and nothing in the form of an arrest happens in either one of the cases. There's a lot of suspicion with several great potential leads, but none of it produces an arrest. Nobody comes forward with new information, really. Investigators have theories, but with very little to go on, it's hard to not only get funding to continue investigating, but to dredge up any solid evidence leading to a potential perpetrator. Remember, with cold cases where new investigators have stepped in and reviewed all the evidence a second or even third time and conduct follow-up interviews, which is what we have going on here, you are dependent on the information coming in. Without any new info coming in, what really do you have? You have a box collecting dust. You know, I love this because my thought is when I hear a quote like that, If the chief of police is calling you out in that tone, making a promise, you had better believe this guy because they are coming for you and they will not stop until they find your ass and place it firmly where it belongs. This guy is making this threat, if you will, for a reason. That much I'm sure of. And sure enough, time catches up with these cases and it suddenly happens. A twist you'll never see coming. We'll be right back. If I was to look at both cases and be forced to come up with a profile, I would probably conclude in a big way that the same guy committed both murders. I mean, how could you not? But remember, they have DNA in both cases. So by the late 2000s, cops know that both murders are one-offs, two different perps. But they just don't come out with that information and announce it for very good reasons. Most who watch Netflix understand at this point, I think. The first break actually dates back to 2006. The Tacoma PD take the semen they collected from Michelle's body and get together with the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab, who then develop a male DNA profile of Michelle's killer. All they need, which is a huge get, by the way, is to then find the person the DNA matches. No easy task, right? But having that complete profile now 
They submit it to CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System we talk about a lot on Crossing the Line. CODIS comes back and says, sorry, no match. Another major letdown. But Tacoma does not give up. And I love this. I love that they are determined to solve these cases. As it happens in many cases, a new detective comes into play. It's 2018 now. And this new guy, Detective Steve Ropel, decides to contact a genetic genealogist and see if they can work backwards and build a family tree from the DNA profile they have. So the semen sample, which is now a DNA profile, has the potential to match with family members of the donor. And that donor would be Michelle's killer. As it happens, that submission and lots and lots of actual roll-up-your-sleeves work proves that the sample belongs to one of two brothers living in Washington State. That This is just an immense break. Ropel begins following the brothers around, like Columbo would do, which I love. <laughs> I just binged all of the Columbo episodes. What's it on? Peacock. Oh, well, there you go. One of these brothers is a nurse. The detective follows the guy one day to work. The guy, Gary Hartman, along with a female coworker, go to lunch at a nearby diner. Ropel sits like 10 feet away from the dude and watches him eat that pastrami on rye. We actually don't know if it was, but we're just assuming it was. <laughs> no, he was eating a club sandwich. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> Killers eat a club sandwich. Egg salad, I would assume. Definitely. <laughs> I was literally going to ask Phelps, what do you think serial killers eat or like murderers eat? Serial killers don't eat much. They don't need a lot of food. <laughs> After Hartman wipes his dirty mouth with a napkin, Ropel knows he has the DNA sample he needs. Simple as that, really. Hartman and his coworker leave the restaurant. Detective Ropel tracks down the waitress who had cleaned off the table and grabs the napkin, which Hartman had stuffed inside a paper bag. Ropel sends the napkin to the lab. Two weeks go by. Results come back. The DNA from the napkin matches that semen DNA profile. Hartman is Michelle's killer. It was a Hartman relative who had submitted DNA to a genealogy website that ultimately provided the family tree linking Gary Hartman to that DNA profile. Hartman and his brother both lived in the north end of Tacoma, about two miles from the park, when Michelle was brutally raped and murdered. Hartman had no prior record. That's crazy. And that's where you see that police work coming in. They're checking into all this stuff. You have to assume too, or maybe not assume, but you have to consider the fact that did Hartman and his brother go out looking for Michelle when the whole neighborhood was getting together to do that? Yeah. And if you're his brother, like, can you imagine yeah. finding that out? Yeah, that's it's some later describe Hartman as a likable guy, quote, sweet and cordial were even attributed to him. He was married to his third wife at the time of his arrest, yet one coworker said this about him, which I think I'm gonna have Catherine read. She said, the first time I met him and shook his hand, he made my skin crawl and my creepometer went into the red. I had to wipe my hand off. It felt that creepy. That's somebody with incredible intuition, I'll just say. So whatever they're doing for work, they should be in some sort of work that involves intuition. Trust your gut. Yeah, always, always. Hartman is charged with first-degree murder and takes it to trial where he's convicted of Michelle's murder. He is sentenced to 320 months in prison, 26 years. Hartman is 69 at sentencing, and he will die in prison most likely, hopefully. 
a horrible death. In 2012, a detective working the murder case of Jennifer Bastian is going through the file again. So we're going backwards a little bit here. This detective notices that a piece of evidence found near Jennifer's body had never been submitted and tested for DNA. So he sends it in. That piece of evidence comes back with another DNA profile. They already had DNA in the form of semen from Jennifer's bathing suit. So get this, over the years, detectives had considered over 2,000, yes, 2,000 potential suspects in both cases, Michelle and Jennifer. None of those ever produced a killer. But in 2016, the FBI got a name with regard to Jennifer's case. And that name, Robert Washburn, a then 60-year-old guy who had lived near the four-mile loop where Jennifer was riding her bike that day. As it turns out, Washburn had always been considered a suspect in Michelle's murder, not Jennifer's. The FBI approaches Washburn in 2016 and asks him for a voluntary DNA sample. He complies. I don't know if he forgot or what. <laughs> That's my question, too. Is like, okay, cool. Like, I raped a bunch of little girls a long time ago, but like, you can have my DNA. That's cool. Sounds great. Uh, yeah. I mean, if the FBI comes to me and asks for a DNA sample and I know I've killed someone, I mean, I'd call a lawyer. How do you feel if you haven't killed someone? How, I'm just curious how you feel about it. I give it. it up. I give the DNA. Yeah. You're yeah. like, give them my DNA, go for yeah. it. Yeah. I don't want to give anybody yeah. any advice, legal advice, but. <laughs> No, just you personally. Yeah. Okay. In May 2018, that DNA comes back as a match to the DNA evidence recently discovered from the Jennifer Bastion scene and the DNA found on her bathing suit. Robert Washburn killed Jennifer Bastion, no doubt about it. Washburn had since moved to Illinois where he is arrested and charged with Jennifer's murder. So both cases, after 36 years of investigation, after 36 years of going cold, are solved within two months of each other. It's wild. It's unreal. And cases that they thought were linked and turned out not to be. Right. These cases weren't even linked. It's unreal. It, it, it proves to me that cold casework, when you have investigators doggedly pursuing new evidence and embracing new technology, unwilling to give up, can produce results and will produce results. A year after Washburn is arrested in 2019, he pleads guilty to first-degree murder. He admits to grabbing Jennifer by the hand and leading her into the woods where he raped and then strangled her to death. He's sentenced to 27 years. And, you know, this part of it really gets me. Um, I'll just leave it there. Washburn apologized for his actions during a court proceeding, saying how sorry he is now. But look, he had decades to come forward and say how sorry he was and admit what he did, but he chose to hide. That's not a guy who is sorry one bit. Trust me. And I'll just end on this. One of Michelle's sisters who was at the park that day she went missing, said in court while facing Gary Hartman, Michelle's rapist and killer, quote, forgiveness is not forgetting but it is remembering without pain. That is so powerful to me. We should all heed that advice. And with that, I will be back next week with more murder and mayhem. Plenty of talk about scumbags. So be safe, be aware. I will see you here next week. Sources for today's episode come from Tacoma Police Department Arrest Affidavit, 
court papers, man arrested in death of child had called police about another murder by Como News staff. Nurse convicted in 1986 rape and murder of 12-year-old girl whose body was found dumped in a ditch by Chris Spargo, Law and Crime. The Michelle Welch case by Stacia Glenn, The News Tribune. Man gets 27 years for cold case murder of Tacoma girl Jennifer Bastion by Drew Mickelson, King 5 News. Man convicted of 1986 rape murder of 12-year-old in Tacoma, sentenced to 26 years in prison by King 5 staff, King 5 News. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 